welcome to the Granite Zero podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Sean. No, it's the pre- privilege is all mine. I sort of um, came across you first on uh, vet- Veteran State of Mind. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. God, that's back a bit. That was a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah, that that popped a popped across, and then um, obviously the the release of your book and things like that. I haven't read it yet, so I'm not going to pretend that I have. Um, that's good. But, that's good. But, that means we we'll talk about other stuff then. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But yeah, how how is the book selling going? Is it going all right? Pretty pretty mental, really. So um, I never intended to write the book to be published. I um, when I came out of the raft and I had my my meltdown in 2020 um I then went on to do some PTSD counseling and during that time started writing the book yeah. took me three weeks to fire like literally three weeks later it was it was on paper well on a laptop and um and then I actually said to do a mate and said I think don't, don't laugh a civvy mate and I said don't laugh I think I've, I've written a book and she was like send it to me. I'll have a read so I sent I emailed her and she was like this is really good you should send it to a publisher so I did and a year and a half later, it's it's on the shop. It's you know it's on the shelves oh, and happy days. Mental. It's like a bestseller um, on the Penitor website where you can get it from. And then oh, awesome. it's been a bestseller since it came out, which is just blowing my mind because I never ever intended anyone to read it or publish it. <laughs> that, that's awesome. That's awesome. I, I went for a similar sort of uh, thing with my book, although mine had very much mixed reviews compared to yours. Um, where. I was struggling in what I was doing with my own mental health issues. I started the podcast, but I thought, what else can I do to sort of air these fucking horrible thoughts and feelings that I was having? Yeah. So I, I put the same down on, I started typing it out. Most of the stuff I already had was um, sort of memoirs that I kept from Iraq and Afghanistan when I was out there. Just little, yeah. little bits from different patrols that I did and how I was feeling at the time and how... <clears throat> You know, be, being in the RAF Reg, you're not really on the, the sort of the front line, as it were, unless you're on Mert and things like that. And unfortunately, I never got to do Mert. Um, yeah. But it's a lot of waiting. The, the way I sort of described my time was very much like the movie Jarhead, where they're waiting for stuff to happen. And it's yeah. the idle minds and, and going out on patrols thinking something's going to happen, but then nothing happens. And you're like, oh, fucking hell, what am I supposed to do? But that in itself is pretty detrimental to mental health. I mean, you know, we used to hold IRT, well, MERT, in the first few years um, mm. for a week at a time as a duty. And then then you we eventually, after like, it became like, you know, pretty kinetic out in Herrick from like 2008, mm. about seven really onwards. Um, they reduced the duty down to 24 hours on so that you could, you weren't in that mental state. And it's that waiting. It's the, because the way that the MERT w- worked is like the phone was in the corner of our tent. We had a little uh, green field phone that would yeah, ring yeah. twice. And then it was like fucking straight out of the aircraft. And just every time that phone went, your your adrenaline just spiked. And even if it was an admin call, um, which was I think was one ring or it was the other way around, um, your yeah. adrenaline still went fucking through the roof. And then you spent the next hour and a half trying to get rid of it or whatever until eventually. Yeah, I, bet. I bet. Um, I bet. And even when you're sleeping, I mean, as soon as there's a stir in the tent, you know, or someone even unzips the tent to come in, you instantly you're up out of your bed. And yeah, although bet. you're sleeping. You're never really asleep, you know, you're always just waiting for that moment. So, yeah, even the, the sitting around waiting it on in, in, a, in a war zone, I think it still does grind you down. Definitely, definitely. So what sort of possessed you to join the Air Force? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm in, yeah, Air Force. Yeah, yeah, what, what made you sort of oh. want, want to join it? 
So my brother was, uh, he went up to join the army when he was 17. Uh, yeah, 17 and a half, actually. And I went with him uh, up to a place called Palace Barracks, which is back home um, in Northern Ireland. And he was doing his barb test, which is the entrance test again, mm -hmm. the army. Um, so he went off to do that. And I sat in the, um, the careers office, or it wasn't even a careers office at that point. Uh, and then a magazine on the table and the magazine had a guy hanging outside of a helicopter on what I thought was a piece of rope at the time. So I said to the dude, um, what, what's this job, this guy on the rope, but it's at the helicopter. And he said, well, it's actually a, a wire and the job is called helicopter crewman or loadmaster as it was in the old days. So loadmaster encompassed everything like a fixed wing rotary, anyone yeah, who yeah. was that, that branch. And I was like, fuck it, that looks like the coolest job on the planet. And, uh, and that was me. I really knew nothing about it at the time. I was just like, that is cool. I want to do that. And uh, so I made a few more inquiries did an interview there and then got accepted to go across to Cranwell and do like sort of all my aptitude testing and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. How did that go down with the with the parents? Obviously, you went down to support your brother and came back signing up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they were pretty. I always said from like, you know, as a teenager that I wanted a job where it wasn't, you know, when you meet someone on the street or in fact, yeah, I actually said I get what you if mean. I'm ever on a game show, I don't want to be like, oh, I'm an accountant or I'm a lawyer or something that everyone knows what it is. I wanted a job that was so unique. People would go, what the fuck is that? So, yeah, it was, I mean, my, we haven't got a history of military in the family, but yeah, me and my brother joined, both joined up within a year. Um, oh, wow. I, I came out of training. The way that the air crew system works is you come out of basic training after three months as a sergeant. So um, yes. plastic sergeant, we get called yep. plastic sergeant. But my brother had already been in the army like a year and a quarter, and I came out. Three months <laughs> yeah, sergeant. it didn't go down so well. I bet yeah. it didn't. We we had a. I used to wind my old man up about things like that. my dad was a PJI uh, for oh, the Force. and yeah. he and obviously when they pass out, they get straight corporal and things like that. And I'm like, well, dad, you were already a corporal before you did anything anyway. He yeah. went because he was he used to bang on. I was a one of the youngest sergeants out of the the group that he was with. I went, all right, how old are you? He was like, I was 24. And I was like, yeah, but you're already a corporal. It doesn't, that doesn't count. Shut up. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would, I would say I was a sergeant, sergeant air crew at 19, because oh, I joined man. on my 19th birthday. And That's mad, isn't it? When you think about it, sergeant at 19. Thank fuck we lived in the little bubble at Cranwell. Yeah, if we I bet. Air Force, we'd get swallowed up. But, um, and yeah, everyone called us plastic sergeants, but, I mean, I was in Iraq at 21. I was the youngest there. I could go to Iraq yeah, yeah. Uh, because I was really lucky that my system went through. I mean, you hear about all these horror stories now about people having to hold going through the training mm. system. I didn't. I was really lucky. I did Cromwell, like basic loadmaster training at Cromwell was another three months, I think. And then off to Shawbury. Shawbury's a six month course was through that. And then was basic Odium when I was, I arrived at Odium when I was 20 and yeah. uh, had my 21st birthday in the UCF and then straight out to Iraq. No, baptism of fire. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I wasn't too dissimilar in terms of age when I went when I went out to Iraq. I went out in 09 and I was 22. Um, yeah. I had my I had my 21st birthday in on Fieldcraft One, they called it out in um, nice. Stan, out in Stanter, um, yeah, nice. which was nice, which was nice because the the DS staff managed to get me some fish and chips, which was nice. And then I, you know, I could have I could have jacked out and stood there and ate it all, but I thought no, I might as well just. Yeah, you know, get, get share some love with the lads you know what i mean yeah but, so yeah. you were out in iraq then whenever iraq was getting malleted with idf that kind of time mm. yeah yeah so so. What, you know looking back now we were obviously we'd already as a chinook force we turned our eyes towards afghanistan at that point and yeah, my yeah, time yeah. was really quiet because we were there 
after I went out after the ward finished, so we were just doing routine tasking around like Shiber and Fajr Palace, yeah, yeah. And like that. But um, and then in Afghan, the very like the public focus and even the media was very much focused on Afghan, and all eyes were on Afghan. Right. Whereas in the background, you guys were getting malleted every day. Yeah. So we we would get quite a fair fair whack of IDF, and I just realised like when I was there, we we obviously did IRT, and that was on the on the Merlins because uh, I think yeah. the all the Chinooks went out to, um, uh, yeah, yeah, out to Herrick, because our squadron, our, our support weapons went out to um, Herrick while we were in Iraq. Um, so they they were the one of the first to start doing, um, yeah, uh, to start doing Mert out in 09. and they yeah. they, they, they they when they came back because obviously we came back from Iraq. Yes, we had a few IDFs, but other than that. You know, I, I I say it's a bit like a lad's holiday. You know, we were going off to Subway. We were fucking mincing about with the with the locals, jumping off bridges, fucking yeah. having, having a whale of a time, getting a nice medal yeah, out of right. it. Iraq was a um, very happy time for me because I, I, mean, I was <laughs> yeah. junior crewman. I was I had no responsibility because it was a junior sprog. Um, yeah. And we had picked the hut. We had the camel's toe bar. We could have two tins or more on an evening. And uh, yeah, Iraq was great fun. I loved it. I yeah. always say it was like, so. Yeah, it was it was nice. Um, well, I say it was nice, apart from the IDF, but mm-hmm. and, a, and a couple of um, RTAs that happened. But other than that, yeah, you know, it was it is what it is. And we got back, and then obviously similar sort of time, the the lads from Herrick came back, and we were like, "You guys look like you've been through the ringer." Yeah, and they were like, "Yeah, yeah we've been doing Merc basically constantly on rotations, and it's just not it's not nice." Yeah, and Merc <coughs> even at the start of Merc. Because Mert was essentially, it was called IRT in Iraq, and then it was IRT at the very beginning of Afghan, and then they renamed it to Mert, but um, essentially exactly the same thing. But the first couple of years I was out there, because I did 10 up, ten deployments all up by the end of it, and that's not that unique for uh, Chinny Cruise, really. We we went every year, but we only did three-month tours. Oh, I got you. Yeah. I was going to say, so, like, like 10 tours of six-month tours, that's... Oof. wasn't quite that bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We did joke that we should buy property out there because we spent so much fucking time in Afghanistan. Yeah, I, and actually, I mean, I had the same bed space every time I went because you'd come back and you'd go back out again and be like, nothing had changed. The same shit tent holding Mert and the same bed space and the same broken coffee machine and, and yeah. fly yeah. wrapper, uh, the fly wrapper hanging off yes. the roof. Like yeah. about pretty much every fly in the whole of Helmand stuck to it, but still no one would change it for a new one. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so, but Mert was really quiet the first couple of years. And again, it's all it's always equal to the amount of boots on the ground. And actually, the first couple of years in Herrick, we really only had Sangin, Goresh, Lashkagar, um, and then Kajaki at the top of Helmand. But the rest of Helmand, you know, was we didn't really have boots on the ground. And and it was only when we started to push up the valley a little bit, then we started to get a bit got a bit more kinetic. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Saying, Mert was quiet. Mert was a lot of watching. What that what was that series? 24. Back to back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then twenty-four. Yeah, Game of Thrones came out. I've never watched a single episode of Game of Thrones. I don't know how I managed to dodge that one because I think the whole. Do you know the what? Chin- I haven't either. I haven't either. <laughs> no. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of waiting and what lot of waiting around, which is a good thing, I guess. Ha- especially a lot, of, lot of hu- lot of hurry up and waiting. But I suppose for for you doing the air crew stuff, that sort of you know a lot of waiting around also sort of means like a good thing. Like, yeah, certainly getting, on Mert. Yeah, because you're not getting spun up to go out, and then it's like, thank, thank fuck, really. Yeah, well, we only we do so the way the crewing worked out there, we would have a crew on Mert, we would have a crew on HRF, which was like the high readiness reaction kind of aircraft, mm. 
mostly to take ammo, water, that kind of thing to anyone. Um, and then we had uh, like the routine tasking. So you'd have two aircraft always doing just the tasking for the, the, the day. And there was always two Chinooks because the idea being is if one went down, the other one could dairy go and recover all the guys on board, yeah. including the passengers most of the time. Because I mean, routinely we'd only declare 24 seats per aircraft. But actually, the Chinook can lift up to 40. In fact, the Chinook can lift up to 60 people if they needed to. Should have been um, brilliant. Yeah. So that was why we always went everywhere with two Chinooks. And then eventually it became two Chinooks and a, an Apache. And I remember at the very start, we were so adverse to the Apaches coming with us anywhere. We were like, what the feck do we need them for? You know, we're pretty good at looking after ourselves. And they're only yeah, going to yeah. slow us down. They're going to get in the way. And they weren't. That They really proved their worth very quickly and got to the point where we didn't actually want to go anywhere without them by the end of it. Yeah, I bet. Because I've always been an admirer of, especially the Chinook pilots, because, you know, especially the British Chinook pilots, should we say as well, because you look at some of the videos, especially when you're getting ready to deploy and they send, like, they'll do like the PowerPoint presentations of like who you're working with. And then they put up the, the slides and the videos of the Chinooks and how they manage to like land or even load people from some of the mountain ranges and things like that. And you're like, fucking hell. Yeah. Like you guys got shot at a lot. It's not like you're a smaller aircraft. <laughs> no, we did. You're right. So we would do a lot of that training. So a lot of the like ridge landings, we see yeah, yeah. the half wheels or just the ramp. I mean, you can in theory fly the air, keep the aircraft what is essentially flying. So it's still airborne in terms mm. of like handling it. And that's how the pilot would sit and hover, but then put the ramp down. So the ramp is just on a ridge. We would practice that a lot. I mean, we went to Morocco. Uh, California is probably the only nice place I'm going to drop in in this entire podcast because the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah. But we did go to California and Jordan um, and did mountain ridge landing. So just that, so we could recover a lot of the guys off, the, you know, the most freaking horrendous sites. Yeah, but yeah. it's pretty impressive because those pilots, obviously, to, to hover an aircraft, I mean, I'm clearly not a pilot, but you need to have references to scan. And whenever you're sat in the hover 8,000 feet and you look out your bubble window beneath your feet, your reference is nowhere. Your reference is 8,000 feet beneath you. So yeah, using yeah. Like, the force to do that is amazing. And it's the same <laughs> with dust landings. The dust landings, whenever the dust in Afghan engulfs the aircraft, I mean, they instantly, you know, dust out and they can barely see anything in terms of, you know, are, are they drifting to the left, the right? You know, are they, are they you know, descending too quickly? So, um, yeah, it's pretty A-level. So I'll take my hat off to them. I mean, the guys that I worked with and flew me around for 17 years are pretty good. They are, yeah, the yeah, top definitely, of Definitely, 100%. Like, and, you know, being the, the youngest service, the Air Force, you know, we, as, a, as a collective, we get a lot of shit. But when you actually think about it, there's a reason why um, we get paid more. Because um, <laughs> we're smart. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I used to routinely introduce myself to people and say, oh, I'm like Liz or whatever. I'm in the Air Force, but I'm on Chinooks. I'm like the pointy end of the Air Force. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was almost so embarrassed to tell people that I was oh, in the Air Force. Oh, and then every BBC, every BBC news report had the Army Chinooks on it anyway. So nobody actually realized that the Chinooks were operated by the Air Force and not yeah, the Army. I know. Um, I know. Well, I, I, for, for the longest time, and whenever anyone asked, oh, what did you do? I'm like, oh, I was in the military. Oh, what did you do? Oh, I was infantry. For the longest time, I would never say oh, I was in the Air Force Regiment because everyone goes, oh, right, so you're a pilot. No. 
<laughs> yeah, I still get it. No, I go back home to Northern Ireland the old time and people still ask if I'm, how's the army? Am I enjoying it? I'm like, it's never oh, in the army. I get and, that. and if I'm a pilot, and I'm, I'm like, I mean, I've done so many of these interviews as well where people have to, or radio interviews and they've just assumed I'm a pilot because they see helicopter and they assume. They see helicopter. Pilot. Yeah, they see the yeah. big helmet and go, oh, you're a pilot. And that's what's the other nice thing about the book coming out is that it's kind of shown a bit of a spotlight on the fact that there is more than two you know pilots on board that aircraft and mm. you don't also for young kids to know that you don't have to have a degree and be a pilot to get in the air and have the most amazing career i mean some everything everything the pilot saw when we were flying around the world i saw too i just saw with my legs dangling over the ramp what yeah, i consider yeah, yeah. the seat in the house so oh, um, definitely definitely yeah. and i never wanted to transfer i used to get asked all the time Liz, do you not want to like go across and do a pilot and i was like no like why if you've got a call sign you can get into trouble whereas i used to have no call sign therefore no no worries and i can yeah, sit yeah. And watch the sun go down at the end of a long day's tasking and even going through the london heli lanes which is one of my favorite trips to do you know you just sit with your legs dangling over the ramp and it doesn't really get much better than that just waving no, at I, bet. I bet so. i bet so in terms of um aircraft are you always on on chinooks or were you uh, on the, the hooks and things like that as well no, so the way it works is you go through training, um, they give you a dream sheet and you can put in your dream sheet what aircraft you want to go on. And initially it kind of sifts you between fixed wing and rotary. So you yeah. get your initial kind of which way you're going to go. And I always wanted rotary. Um, and then whenever you're finishing Shawbury, you get a dream sheet and you get to put down what aircraft you want in what order. Um, and I put Chinook, I think for all three as a bit of a joke. And then got sent Merlin. Funny enough, I was actually streamed Merlin on my... Um, graduation at Shawbury and I was heartbroken we do I like bet. a yeah. we were doing like a beer festival or like a beer drinking game thing you have to neck your pint into the bottom of your pint glass it says what aircraft are on and myself and another guy actually <laughs> rap regiment an old mate of mine called Dusty Hare um, he and I were both sent Merlin and then within about 20 minutes the senior instructor pulled us aside and said actually you're not going Merlin um, Merlin's are backlogged and you guys are actually going to go Chinook because they can take you right. like next week and I was honestly, I think I've been skin in my teeth that day. And thank God that it was. Yeah. It, um, remember, yeah, I remember going through our pass out or is just before our pass out. I can't really remember, but it was about the time where they started to give our squadrons to what we were going to have. And we had, unless you were some sort of super fitness freak, you might get two squadron um, and go and become a, a para. Um, but our, our two was... Um, 15 squadron and 63 and obviously 63 being queen's color squadron most of us were like i don't want that <laughs> I, don't, I don't i do not want to be marching around like a fucking knob um yeah. although they do a brilliant job just want to say that they do so i remember getting the like the the sheet that you pull out and i'm like fucking please 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 i was shit when it came to ironing fucking block stuff fucking marching anything like that i was dog shit I was that's useless. good then that probably points to not yeah to yeah well you'd like to think so but there a few of them that were also very similar to myself actually got 63 but i pulled mine out and i was like fucking thank fuck got this got the snake and dagger i'm off to to 15 squadron mm. and then we were we've actually been quite we were actually quite lucky on 15 and obviously we we were the last british patrol in iraq we closed it down and handed it to the yanks which they gave to which the uh, Iraqis gave us um, a lovely leaving present of 64 rockets in a night. Um, nice. Yeah, very nice of them. And then when we went to Kandahar, we then handed that over to, the I think it was the uh, the first mountain division, I think it was, someone like that. But we handed yeah. that over to the Yanks as well. So it was like every time 
we we seem, we, we seem to be the end of things in fact yeah. even when i i'd left my one of my best friends um nick anderson was on when they then closed down um bastion so it was like 15 squadrons. i was at the end of bastion yeah, yeah so i was there whenever i was in basra when the first merlins arrived to um to take over from us and they hadn't armed down properly and they fired out a load of flares all over the <laughs> like hey and then i seem to remember my pilot pitching up and going nice of you to do the fireworks display for arriving <laughs> but, um, i was there with the merlins took over and then in herrick i wasn't on the first cabs into herrick by any means but um i was there in 05 and then my last jet was at 15 and I was on the last cabs to lift out of Bastion back to Kandahar and then everyone pushed up to Kabul. So that was really weird kind of leaving Bastion and Bastion has, I mean, I'd seen it grow grow from essentially a barbed wire fence in the middle of a dust bowl. Yeah. And we, we'd underslung everything to build Bastion. You know, the stuff that was in Bastion didn't arrive there by accident. It was all taken out. No, of course out. not. No, yeah. I mean, every day for the first couple of Herrick tours I did, you know, you put the ramp down on a daily tasking day and you'd have like, a cable drum you'd have you know fuel drums you'd have a step ladder building block you just have cement mixers you'd have all sorts of shit and you just had to, it was like a bad game of jenga yeah. make all flat across the bastion and then by the time we left um and i got handed back to the uh the locals or the afghan army it was just um it was really sad actually really sad leaving it and thinking what's going to become of it so yeah i saw a bfs documentary about it a couple of years ago and it looked like the Marie Celeste, you know, just walking around. You could still see the things you recognise, like the defac yeah, and the jib. Yeah. Um, but it was just really weird and creepy looking. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's props to all the uh, the engineers and things like that for how quickly they turned it into what it was. Yeah, 100%. So. 100%. So going, going to your actual role as, as the, the Loadmaster, which is probably the coolest title ever, by the way. Loadmaster is brilliant. So obviously, what what is your main sort of job that you you're doing? Obviously, like you said, you're dangling off the back sometimes. Yeah, and, you, and you've got the you got the got the big gun. Yeah. Oh yeah, we'll talk about the guns then. So um, yeah. well, the, the better <laughs> really is we're like the eyes and ears of the pilot. So obviously, on a Chinook, in fact, most helicopters, if the pilot is sat in the cockpit, he can't see a lot of what's going on behind him. Mm-hmm. So. We are the eyes and ears to basically voice marshal the aircraft around the sky or into a landing site. So uh, main things we do is anything that comes in on board the aircraft, you know, inside or underneath, we're in charge of. So center of gravity for that, where we're going to put it, how we're going to restrain it. Troops that come on board, we're in charge of, you know, briefing them, all that, the, almost the air hostess stuff, but never quote me on that one. Um, <laughs> and then, and anything that can't go inside, then we'll put underneath and we have to obviously work out which drops we're going to put on where and where the CFG is going to fall in the aircraft. Um, so we kind of work all that out pre-flight. We do a lot of the navigation, a lot of the radio, certainly in Herrick, we, we take the TAC radio, which is between zero and the ground call signs and us. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, um, yeah, so when it comes to them picking up all this stuff, so certainly for the undertone load, you have to make sure you're in the overhead because if you're going to pick up like a Wimmick or something and you're not directly in the overhead, as soon as that thing comes off the ground, it's just going to swing. And it's either going to swing and damage the, the chassis or it's going to injure someone who's been stood next to it. So you have to make sure that the aircraft is in the overhead. So that's our, our kind of job is to really refine that for the pilot and make sure he, he's in the steady hover. And then descend so he's at the right height as well to pick it up. 
Uh, and it's the same when we come into like landing sites, so different landing sites. Not everything's the size of a football pitch, sadly. Yeah, so we can find areas, a lot of the, the fobs. We will then voice marshal him in from 40 feet, you know, descending and get him in when he's and let him know when he's clear of the pesco or he's clear of the troops to descend. We'll also brief him on any hazards, that kind of thing, like portaloos that are about to get airborne. Which is <laughs> Um, and, and then landing on slopes, like I said earlier, the ridge landings, things like that. It's for us. He has no idea where those wheels are, the aft wheels or the ramp. Mm. He is sat looking out the front of the aircraft. So it's our job to be. And that's where you really earn your money because, you you know, you've got a foot to play with there. Uh, so you're trying to, you know, and, and keep really calm. So all hell can be breaking loose around the aircraft. You could be getting shot at. You could be sliding off a ridge. But the idea being is that you keep your voice nice and calm, almost like an air trafficker. Yeah, I so get you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we do all that. And then, obviously, the guns. So, yeah. Big yeah, guns. we'll get to the guns. But, obviously, <laughs> like, for myself, um, I was a I was a signaller towards the end of my sort of time. I was um, the lead signaller on the squadron. I was a flight signaller during Kandahar. And a lot of people don't realise that, how calm you have to be when you're on the radio because obviously it's not the it's not the greatest bit of comms equipment in the world so things get broken up things get lost in translation and things like that and if you're flapping and your voice is going all over the shop you know it it doesn't help anyone so even if the rounds are coming down or my when i was in the command center and and it was about to take off because someone hit a fucking ied and all the fucking barcodes come in thinking they know everything you're like will you just shut the fuck up i'm trying to yeah relay information absolutely and i, I think um because as they come back to the tack radio we would be chatting to the guys on the ground for some of the mert stuff on the way in yeah, yeah. and mert, mert shouts don't happen for no reason nine nine times out of ten you know either they're in a tick so it's troops in contact or they've hit an id or something yeah, yeah. and and then we never used to go and land at the point of injury so the guys would have to then you know be carrying the stretcher out to wherever we go to, to land so you'd be chatting to whoever was on the ground and um, you could hear they were fucking hanging out their asses, you know, they're running whilst being on the radio. And, yeah. you know, sometimes, not all the time, but the odd time you could hear literally gunfire in the background of the radio calls when you're going into a landing site. You're like, fucking hell, what are we doing? But, <laughs> yeah. Oh, went. but yeah, you're right, you know, clear, like absolutely calm, nice and clear, all about the brevity. And um, even if all hell is kicking off in yeah. the background. It is mad. Like the amount of times that, because I... On my last tour, I dealt with every major incident. I was in the hot seat, as I called it, which, funnily enough, my call sign was Granite Zero. Um, nice. All right, that um, makes sense. And it's also a play on words, but we'll get to that afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. So I was Granite Zero, and, like, fucking everybody would come in. I would have – I remember telling my flight sergeant behind me, who was the watchkeeper, I remember to him telling him to shut the fuck up because I was trying to relay information from the air desk who sat next to me, who was talking to either Mert or the lads on the ground. And I'm talking to the other call signs on the ground. And I've got the Americans talking to me and I've got a dickhead behind me screaming at me. I'm like, will you shut the fuck up? It's a skill. It is genuinely a skill. Cause we used to have, we'd obviously have the radio. The pilots would then have our traffic on um, yeah. or be speaking to anyone who's in the overhead watch. And then and the Apaches would obviously be up on frequency as well. But then you've got the comms of the aircraft. So you're talking to your crew. Yeah, exactly. You've then got the doctor in as well, who's piping in. And yeah. having, being able to switch your brain and being able to hear all that stuff in the background, but know that you're listening to something else or be talking while you're listening to your radio is it a definite skill. You know, it's something that 100%. I don't think 
I don't know how you ever put that on a CV. But I don't know. A... I don't know. I literally, have, I don't know if I've even put it on my CV. But yeah. um, I remember, I remember one story. Um, we had a, um, I can't remember what the, um, what the incident was. I, I can't remember if it was one of the first rocket attacks we had on Bastion or if it was something else. But I remember we were dealing with about seven different entities talking over the radio. We were getting one flight to go over here to do something. We've got another flight doing something else. We've got the air desk talking to me about what they've seen from the balloon or uh, aircraft in the area. And I remember that this tax sergeant coming over the net asking for a radio check. And I was like, are you taking the piss? <laughs> I was like, why are you giving me a radio check now? You can clearly hear the, the traffic that's going on. It's yeah. And I remember coming was... up and I always remember just going, Charlie, Charlie one, this is Granite Zero. Can we please not do any more bone radio checks? while the incident is going on and he came storming in a bit later on in in the week because obviously i had basically told him to shut the fuck up over the net and yeah. he's a he's a sergeant and i'm just a mere sac he's come yeah. storming in and he was about to have a go at me and then the to be fair the the flight sergeant behind me was like no i'll stop you there. while he's in that seat he's got the um wing commander's authority to do whatever he wants nice. on it i was like that thank the fuck for that yeah. Thank you. I was like, thank you. Thank you very much. That was a good thing about tr Tricky 73 was the merch call sign. And as yeah. soon as we built up the Tricky 73, everybody shut the fuck up on frequency, which was really good. We used to banter yeah. the links, boys, because the links used to, it was like, I've got a radio, I'm going to talk on it. So we used to, <laughs> yeah. uh, link, we used to call them Links FM every time they, they build up on frequency. It was all Links FM, back up. But the Apaches used to relay to us the ICOM. So the ICOM coming from mm. what they were picking up from the Taliban around some of the sites. And they used to ask us, did we want it fed back into the, our aircraft? And it was like a double-edged sword because sometimes, uh, well, a lot of the time the Taliban would say stuff that was just, you know, trying to Jedi mind trick, trick us into thinking yeah, that yeah. they were going to attack us and actually they couldn't see us at all. But then the odd time they would say things like, I can see the mosquitoes. Yeah, I can see the fat cows. Yeah, there's two of them. Yeah, the mosquitoes are pushing off to the east now. And it's like, fuck, they actually can't see us. And then yeah. you'd hear they get the big gun ready for the cow. And you're like, oh, fuck, that's us. Because they call it you know, the chimney. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, why do, why do you even want to know this? Because <laughs> you didn't know you were going to get shot at when you landed on. Because it was almost a given in Afghan at one point. You know, you're yeah, going to yeah. need to be rocketed or shot at. But being told about it beforehand was like, mm, <laughs> do we want yeah. to know this? You're like, oh, fuck's sake. Just, yeah. let, just let me land on. Is someone yeah. hurt down there? <laughs> yeah, it's got to be. Yeah. That's got to be fair. That's got to be a bit of a an adrenaline booster if you can actually hear him say we're coming after, as you would call the fat cow. Yeah, yeah. Oof. I I've I, written in the book at one point as well. Like so, the um because we were on rules. Uh, we were on card alpha for the rules of engagement at the start mm. and the end. Of Eric. Oh, yeah. Um. So you know. And it was trying to kind of press that onto the younger guys. You know, you've got to really get to that point where you know that if it's him or me, it's him. You know, if you get to that pinch mm -hmm. moment where you know that if you do not pull that trigger, your aircraft is going to take a round or, or you're going to go down. Um, but in the middle of Herrick, it was 49 Alpha. So we were briefed that anything um, north of Highway 1 wearing a black turban was considered Taliban. And we were well within the rules of engagement to open up on, on anyone. And yeah. the Yangs did like frequently they were prolific they used to just hose people down oh yeah they loved it we thankfully were a bit more restrained as a force really but you know that said there was also some crewmen out there who were pretty gung-ho you know they just wanted to go out and fucking get into iraq uh, i always had the, the this sort of stance where again if, if it's you've got to live the consequences you pull that trigger and you've got to live the consequences for the rest mm. of your life 
Um, and we've got a thing called the separation of altitude. So unlike a lot of the guys in the ground and yourselves included, you know, you go into a building or, you know, the SF guys, you come into a compound, you're shooting someone in the whites of their eyes. We, we don't have that. We shoot from height and you don't necessarily always know what the outcome of you squeezing that mm. trigger is. Um, I mean, certainly with a minigun, you can see the Hilux disappear from existence, which yeah. pretty much, you know, has happened. But um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, having a trigger in your command, it's an it's a, it's a real privilege and it has to be taken with the, you know, the gravity and the um, responsibility that comes with that, I think. Definitely, definitely. And then, do you know, like not many people, especially within the regiment, um, not many people actually discharged. I think more so in when they were out in Bastion, I think they had a bit more kinetic stuff. Um, probably Kandahar during the beginnings, I would say. But in terms of like what I've sort of done, I think I, I fired I fired my nine mil, um, <laughs> which was actually quite a funny story. Um, we got we got um, a bit of chatter saying that there was a lot of um, moped-born IEDs. Um, yeah. So we were doing a, v a snap VCP and uh, there was a moped coming towards me. I asked it to stop. It didn't stop. And I was like, fucking hell. Pulled me pistol out and was like, stop. Still nothing. Asked the top cover to fire the mini flare. Still wasn't going. So cocked, shot into captured ground. It fucking hit the ground. Guy was flapping like something out of Team America. Yeah. And then stopped using his feet. Literally, it wasn't it wasn't much distance between us. I was like, "Fucking hell!" So I've yeah. gone up to try and brought the turp up with me, and I was like, "Ask him why he didn't fucking stop." Fucking brakes didn't work. I was like, "Well," I was like, "He was one like the next round was either going in the engine block or yeah, him." Um, not that, I was, you got not that I was very good with a pistol, but I would, I would have given it a go. Anyone? <laughs> We carried Browning pistols for. I mean, I remember going out to do the, um, you know, the RSOI, you know, the thing yeah, in Starbucks, yeah. yeah, sit yeah. and get briefed. Um, it was like only the Chinook Air Crew that had the fucking Browning pistol still. And this is like 2013 or something. We, we were so far behind. We're getting the yeah, Glock. We, we, like, well, we had, I never actually got the Glock. So on my on my last two tours, we had the SIG. Yeah. P226, yeah. which to oh, quote, we to, had. To quote uh, yourself after watching 24, you know, that Strat Bauer's weapon of choice was the SIG. So. No, we were still on the Browning. <laughs> and I was going to be instructor. So I remember I was telling someone this recently, you know, I look back on my heyday and, and the forces and I was qualified on, you know, the, the Browning pistol, the, eventually the Glock as well, and then the SA-80, but then the yeah. minigun and the um, the M60. So because um, I was an instructor as well, like we, we used to go out to America and... Um, there was a 360 round, 360 range out in America. So we would fly from El Centro and go out and have all three guns open, opening up at once, which is like a, a crewman's wet dream. Ooh, <laughs> Very impressive. That's so, naughty. Yeah. That it is was, naughty. It was good fun. So, I bet, yeah. I bet. All right, Liz, we've got three minutes left on this timer. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pause it here for the ad break mm -hmm. and I'll send you another link and we'll continue and then uh, see where we yeah. can from there. Sounds good. I'll watch for another link. Yeah. Cool. Bye, 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 bye. Hello. You're at the adverts. So don't turn off. Don't turn off because I've got some good stuff for you. First up, I'm going to talk about our sponsors. Kent CBD is our first sponsor. Now, CBD oil, as you know, has tremendous benefits, especially within mental health and physical health. Personally, I use it to help with my anxiety 
and my depression. But not only that, I also use it to help with the aches and pains of life in my joints, especially my ankles and my knees. Um, but yeah, without CBD oil, I would have still been on my antidepressant tablets, which I'm no longer on. So, you know, every cloud. And what we're going to do here at Granite Zero is we're going to give you 10% off everything from oil, muscle rub, jellies, bath salts, the lot. Yeah? Make sure you get in there. www.kentcbd.org. Put in the promo code Granite Zero and get yourself 10% off. You are welcome. But also, if you're like me and you love a nice cup of coffee, now, for me, I only drink one coffee, and that's Green Beret coffee. Now, I don't only drink it because it's out of this world fucking coffee, roast to order, grinded to whatever specific grind you want. But not only that, it's veteran-owned and veteran-run, which, you know, hits me right in the feels. So make sure you check it out, Green Beret Coffee. Get yourself a nice cup of coffee. I drink it dark, just like my soul. Incredible stuff, incredible stuff. And what I'm going to give for you, I'm going to give you 10% off. So once you get to the checkout, once you've got all your coffee, your products, your apparel, whatever you need, get to the checkout and put in the promo code GZPODCAST. 10 and get yourself 10% off courtesy of the Granite Zero podcast. You are welcome. Now, that's enough of me talking about this stuff. Back to the regular scheduled show. Check it out! And we're back after that short advert break. <laughs> so, you got to you got to talk me through the big gun. Did you did you <laughs> did you name the big gun? Did you have a little name for it? I didn't because you had a different aircraft every day. So um yeah, it was different. Oh, fair different, enough. Different beast. But um yeah, it's called the minigun, which always struck me as hilarious because there's nothing mini about that gun. Um 762 um and uh, three thousand rounds a minute. In the old days, the minigun used to have two triggers, so basically like um little t- triggers. Yeah, yeah, a bit, bit like the 50. Uh, yeah, and uh previous like before. 2010 maybe um used to have two bits of fire so 2000 rounds a minute and 4000 rounds a minute and i think 2000 was left thumb 4000 was right thumb and we used to we used to have a joke and it was just a joke for anyone who's going to get offended by this that it was for <laughs> women and children and the real baddies um, <laughs> and then eventually uh they they changed over to um to just to both both triggers did exactly the same rate of fire which was 3000 rounds a minute and 3,000 rounds a minute of, of 7.62 with um, Orbit Tracer it was was pretty impressive. It looked like a lightsaber and like yeah, time yeah. stuff. Um, so we had that we had that on the port and starboard side of the aircraft up, up front and, and only one crewman. So it was your job to man both weapons. So any kind of energy glean on the way into a landing site was obviously pretty useful on a lot of the deliberate ops mainly because the deliberate, unlike the routine tasking, which was during the day, a lot of the deliberate ops we did were, were landing at sort of known Taliban yeah, um, locations. So if you knew which compound they were located in, you'd obviously man the weapon with the nearest threat to it. Yeah, um, and then on the on the ramp we had an M60, and the reason why we had an, an M60 on the ramp and not another minigun was because the M60 can be removed with just a little pit pin, and and mm. um, so you could get vehicles and stuff like that inside. Then you so take the take the M60 off, load the vehicle, put the M60 back on, and off you go. Um, for a while in Afghan we were doing a lot of uh, roller conveyor stuff, so we put 
pallets of ammunition on board the aircraft and then basically you land and you truck forward and the pallets come flying out the back of the aircraft yeah, so yeah. You, you take the m60 off for that but then try and fit it for the rest of the, the day's tasking so uh, that so that's why it was with one of those on the ramp and um yeah it's, it's 762 again but it's like all trusty it's just you know um 200 rounds in two minutes and you got a hot barrel so i think this is yeah 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 rounds a minute or something but it was um it always worked i used to love the m60 but it felt like you were back in vietnam <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was a, a weapon that the hueys had been in, in vietnam on bungees so yeah yeah pretty old school and i think the only way we could get spares for it was through the argentinians which always struck me as quite ironic <laughs> yes that is yeah hey you got any spares for this oh really yeah so, uh, but no, um, it was, I mean, I've had used them a few times, um, but uh, like I spoke about earlier, you know, you get to that point where, you know, if you don't pull that trigger, your aircraft's going to get taken coming. So it's him or me, it's him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And having that big bertha on the side is definitely going <laughs> to, it's going to rain some hell down, some hellfire yeah. from above. Um, because of the limits on the gun, actually, if you get contacted when you're on the ground, it's it's pretty useless because you, you, it's on the stops yeah, and you can't I'm, actually. I'm bring guessing it to bear. It can, yeah, you can't move it as as. No, and it's free. obviously got stops, so you're never going to shoot the rotor blades off. So <laughs> that, it well, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> it's helpful. Um, but it means that if you're on the deck, it's really hard to bring the weapon to bear on anyone. Um, yeah. And truth be told, if you're taking incoming on it in a chinook on the ground nine times out of ten you don't know about it because it's really hard to hear the noise of the aircraft is so yeah, it's, a, it's a loud yeah it's a loud aircraft to be fair you can sometimes hear a little ting 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 as the rounds coming around you which is obviously really reassuring when you're stood at the minigun and there's fuck all you can do about it apart from hope that you've got your little ready brick glow around you and that no one's gonna freaking get you but um yeah you can sometimes see dust kicking up around the aircraft on the landing site and then you know you're taking and coming but um to try and identify a firing point especially when you're trying to load an aircraft and, and do all that stuff at the same time you know it's nine times out of ten we will we'll get into contact either on departing a landing site or yeah, on the yeah. way and then call an overshoot and we'll go around so I suppose yeah. that's uh that's always good um to have the lights of the raft reg especially when you're doing mert taskings so obviously their yeah. their job is to then secure the landing site. They were brilliant, really good, and we always. Yeah, do, do you hear that, good. people? They were brilliant. <laughs> they really were. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, merch sites when the platform went, it was just to see if people running out to the aircraft, and you know, we'd crew in and we'd be doing all our checks, and because one of the crewmen would stay behind to get the rest of the nine liner. So as a single crewman, you'd now be doing double the amount of checks. You'd be running around all over the place. Yeah. Um, the medics would be getting their kit on and their um whatnot and yeah the raft edge guys would be getting their headsets on and, and kind of crewing in and they were yeah they were really good you know not only did they do the all-round protection at the landing sites but you know sometimes on the way to a landing site for Mert it wasn't just one casualty you're going to go and get you know came through on the radio that it was maybe multiple casualties and you would just have to get the nod to the guys and they'd start picking up the, the seats for us the sidewall seats and they'd start folding them up against the side of the aircraft so we could fit more stretchers in and, and I think we all knew on board the aircraft when that started to happen, that wherever we were going, it was going to be carnage and it was going to be a messy landing site. Mm. Um, uh, but they were great. You know, they and uh, they, before we lifted out of any landing site, we were collecting casualties. We as the crewmen had to do a head count. And that's the hardest thing in the world to try and do when you've got medics on the floor, all like crouched around stretchers. Yeah. You've got the, the raft edge guys, the force protection guys that come back on and you're counting them. And then you've got a couple of walking wounded and a couple of guys who are bringing the walking wounded or the casualties kit 
on the aircraft with their weapons and and then also going back off the ramp and it's just mayhem so to make sure that you've got all the right people on the aircraft before you depart is, is really quite hard especially when you set off thinking you're going to pick up three casualties and when you actually get to the landing site you realize there's maybe seven casualties so you've got to count them in but um and now it's, it's live it's dusty you may be taking incoming so yeah but the rafael guys were great so yeah thank we'll, you we'll, we'll take that we'll take that <laughs> uh, that was one of the roles that I really wish I I, I got on and, and got to do was was Mert. Obviously, that's one of the big things that we we provide. Um, but unfortunately, I was stuck in the command centre. Um, but, you know, everybody's got a job role. Everyone's got to do something. It was the best purpose I ever had. You know, um, it was the best of times and the worst of times in that I've seen guys come over the ramp who had, were already, you know, had already died and the medics brought them back to life up my feet on the floor of a chinook and it's just you know that's a testament to the medics that we had at the yeah, time definitely definitely at one time afghan was the only place in the world where you could survive a non-survivable injury which as a statistic is mind-blowing to think that those oh, definitely you know, based on our, our medics but equally you know i've seen so many people take their last breaths in the back of in the back of the aircraft and you know it, it it stays you i think that you know that sense of purpose it's really hard to get that again in any city yeah, job yeah. definitely and for me that was i've said it fucking countless times on here that was my my downfall was when i left i never had that sense of purpose and that was when all the, the the flooding of of different emotions from feeling a bit worthless um feeling like i didn't have an identity anymore because previously i was tomo i was the raf reg guy where have you been recently oh, i've been to afghan but now it's like oh, what do you do now i'm a security guard oh brilliant I, I absolutely get that. I, I came out of it in 2019 and I was med boarded out because I, I damaged my neck just from all the flying I did. And I, I was exactly the same. 2020 started to come unraveled really quickly and it was that lack of purpose. It was, you know, mm. we were in lockdown. There was like no reason to get out of bed in the morning. You know, what's the point? No one cares. No one, I've got no reason to kind of keep grafting. And, and the lack of identity, you know, I used to laugh that we put our flying suits on every day and we'd have our name badge on them. And, you know, was that name written there for me or was it you know, written for people to see who I was or was it written for me? Yeah. You know, who it was, you know, it was, it was you, you've got an identical <laughs> purpose when you're in the forces and then suddenly going from that to nothing really hit me really hard. And I started to come really unraveled very quickly and then end up taking a huge overdose in, in 2020. Oh, really? Sole purpose, of, yeah, ending my life and um, and just, yeah, wanting wanting all to kind of just go away and end. It's, it, I, I've had those sort of thoughts and feelings i never actually went whole hog you know um i made the mistake of taking or getting different medications online instead of taking the ones that are prescribed to me to try and block out all these fucking horrible shit in my head yeah um and at that point i started to get a bit suicidal but i was like no i'm i, I can't like I, I went and did uh, a few different courses. The the biggest one I did was um, a course called Inner Armour, which unfortunately never grew into what it should have done. Um, it kept getting blocked by higher ups within the military and the police force. Yeah. Um, because it didn't have a hundred percent success rate, they were like, "We can't give this to the troops." And I was uh, me being one of them. A couple of Marines that were on it another couple of um raf reg guys um there was a it was really senior i believe he was a captain i'm not gonna quote on that but he was one of the lead guys for the 
uh, invasion in Iraq. Yeah. He was at the forefront of that and things like that. And these guys were all, we were all going through this course, going through all this different positive psychology stuff. And you mm. can see all the different cogs turning and how, how you can get the different shining lights to sort yourself out. So I managed to get myself out of it through doing different courses and, and things like that. See, I missed all that. I was, um, and I think to be fair, the British forces as a whole missed a lot of that. There was a bunch of people who were on Herrick from like 06 right through to 010. Maybe, and, mm. um, and Herrick was really kinetic then. I mean, Mert was like seeing the mash at one point and um, there was no decompression coming back. In. Yeah. And then actually they realized we're really fucking people up here. So decompression came in, the mandatory decompression at Cyprus. Which everyone whinged about. Everybody I knew whinged about coming back. Why do I have to spend two nights drinking beer and yeah. chatting with Cardray? But actually, it probably did help in the long run, really, looking back retrospectively. But it was too late for a few people. And I was one of those, you know. But yeah. the whole time I was in the forces, I was fine. It was lockdown that, that did it for me. It was the yeah. all my coping mechanisms, which were keeping busy your mates. Like, we all do that, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, going to the gym, going running. I did a lot of running at the time. And funny enough, the more trauma I saw, the more I ran. But suddenly when lockdown hit and you had a no purpose that like we spoke about, but also so much spare time and your thoughts just started to creep up on you again. And that's where it really, you know, just one morning I just woke up and still referred it like a day watching your life through a lens. It was like being mm. body snatched by the Grim Reaper. And I spent the entire day planning with precision, absolute precision, how to end my life that night. And then took an overdose of 95 amitriptyline tablets and, uh, we got two days later on, on life support in Basingstoke Hospital. And yeah, so don't remember much about the rest of the evening, but um, thankfully uh, it turns out- Who found you? So I didn't know at the time. I, so I came around two days later. I was I intubated, had a tube down my throat. Mm. And the irony was that as soon as I came around and there was obviously doctor's faces above my head and couldn't really move, I just didn't want to die. That was an overwhelming emotion was like, don't let me die, don't let me die. and. 48 hours before that was all I'd wanted to do and it just proves yeah. that when you're in that really bad space your brain can be really hijacked um but I, I got out eventually on the Saturday and got reunited with my phone that had been left in, in my apartment whenever they uh turns out I'd called 911 at 10 to midnight I took the overdose at midnight and then called 911 at 10 to 1 none of which I remember uh, and was on the phone then for 11 minutes so that must have been somewhere inside me. Something didn't want to die, uh, and I wish I wish I, I sort of knew more about what happened in the evening. But you know, it's from yeah, yeah. Close. I think I, I think I can still remember someone saying, "Stay on the phone, Elizabeth. Don't go to sleep." But I'm not sure if that happened or if that's my brain trying to fill in the gaps. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I spoke to the ambulance crew a few weeks later to thank them. Um, because I've always been in the mindset that suicide is an extremely selfish thing to do. And I, I was yeah. always, you know, can't believe people would do that. And, and I lost a really good mate to cancer as well a couple of years ago. And I, you know, in my suicide note, as I was writing it, I was like, you know, writing all these things down, completely emotionless, writing a suicide note to my parents and including the fact mm. that, you know, Anna had lost her life and I'm taking mine, you know, oh well. I had no emotion that day, completely void of it. But I, I realize now that, you know, people, when they get to that stage in life and when you mentally checked out, it's it's not selfish it's kind of your only option that's how you feel at the time and yeah, I was yeah. I was on a, a you know water slide with my donut ready to go down that slide and nobody could have stopped me by the time I got to that point and I think hopefully there's a message at the end of the book for people to say you know you've got to speak to people if you ever see those signs Definitely. in yourself 
and also for other people to reach out because by the time you get to that stage there's nothing you can do nobody can help you really um so it's for our mates and stuff to kind of pick up the little tiny signs beforehand and i was the master of disguise i mean no one knew what i think i think um i'm speaking from experience i think us people from the military background are very good at masking that sort of thing yeah like no for, clue. Yeah, for, forever in a day my my friends and family apart from apart from my wife was the only one that really would pick up on the change in myself because obviously she's seeing me more frequent than my friends but my friends would still see me as tomo like i always joke and say no tomo no party like mm-hmm. if we're going out if i'm yeah. if i'm not drinking there's going to be no there's no there's no party yeah but, you know at home I mentioned it on um, a previous podcast, like it would be even down to the small things. Like at the time when I was at my worst, my daughters would have been probably six and three, maybe. And um, and the youngest would just throw a spoon on the floor or something and I would lose my shit. It would be, right, yeah. it'd be like the worst thing that's ever happened. And the missus would be like, what are you doing? She's yeah. three years old. And I'm like, oh, fucking. And then I'd storm out or, or whatever. Yeah. And then I would just... I went from one extreme where I'm getting angry at everything to the next extreme where I'd be just silent and quiet and not, you're not giving a fuck. Your bag of fucks is empty at this point. Yeah. yeah. And I'd be yeah. like completely checked out. I'd be like scrolling through Instagram or whatever. My missus would be trying to have a conversation with me. I'm like, yeah, okay. And just mm-hmm. keep scrolling. But now I think living with someone at the time, somebody might have picked up my behavior because I used to mm-hmm. run every day to cycle lots. And, and I got to a point where I just wouldn't leave the house. <coughs> But I, because I was living on my own during lockdown, no one was there to pick up on all these little signs. My best friend knew that I wasn't in a great place. And funny enough, the day before I took the overdose, she actually texted and said, how are you getting on today? How are you feeling? And I'd only seen her like on the Tuesday. And uh, I texted her back and said, yeah, much better. Really good. I've got a plan. And I texted her that and she's got it. I mean, she still looks back now and goes, I cannot believe I didn't pick up on that language at the time, Liz. That mm. that and my plan was, you know, the whole day spent it's it's sort of like subconsciously you've sort of given her a clue yeah yeah without it in your head in your head you like i've got i've got the fucking plan i know what i'm doing yeah and then there's a little part of liz in there that's gone right if i text her saying i've got a plan she might pick up on that yeah and it, the, all the details were in the book of the day and whatnot but um there was a lot of time where i reached out to gps and whatnot and and just got slipped through the net really um because they were maxed out because of covid so yeah. um yeah but a very lucky girl at the, the ambulance crew said if i hadn't lived next to the hospital um i probably oh, wouldn't lucky. have made it you could see the hospital from my apartment so i was very very lucky but um i still think i've got a guardian angel looking after me but but the good thing is i can now you know use my experiences to exactly. kind of pass on to other people and that that's a big thing i spoke to a previous guest before about um because I, I i was always like oh does anyone really give a shit of what i talk about on here in terms of the mental health stuff is it oh i think we might have frozen we back? um and he was he's uh he's another guy that's um he's uh sort of manic um depressive and, and things like that. he's been sectioned a number of times and he's like well who else is better to talk about it than someone that's been through it yeah yeah and what i am really keen to do you know just to take, kind of sort of share my story yeah. and hopefully you know, help people who are going through it but also kind of 
I'm hopefully a bit of a positive you know story in that I then wrote the book and the book was like three weeks in the making like I said earlier I wrote loads of poetry as well I found that poetry and just getting stuff out of my head and onto paper was just so cathartic but I then did like two years worth of um help a heroes counseling PTSD resolutions counseling the first one PTSD resolutions came first and I just mm. did not get on my counselor at all I was just like lovely lady and don't get me wrong she did nothing wrong but she had like a headscarf on and bangles all up her arm and I was just like she's a hippie she's not going to get things about miniguns and yeah. she was lovely but just not the right fit for me and then I moved on to another I came through all that and then the books obviously came out three weeks ago but I feel like I don't want to let what happened then define me for the rest of my life yeah, I, yeah, I okay, yeah. I've kind of I've, I've had my counseling and I've actually come through it now and I don't feel like I, I do have PTSD anymore I feel like that's a chapter of my book as a chapter of my life and my story Get it. but it's not me it's not my new label and I think that's hopefully a message for a lot of people because it's sometimes so easy to define yourself forever as having PTSD or trauma yep. or constant illness. But there is a way forward where you can actually come off the meds. I was on meds for two years, actually, after the overdose. and only came off them in January this year. I was on sertraline. And, um, Same here. Okay. So, it, I mean, it, it, it fucks you up in so many other ways as well. I mean, it I agree. I agree. Again, my entire life up. <laughs> again, I've, I've, state, I've stated on here that when I was on, on my antidepressants, I was numb. I couldn't feel anything. I hated it. Yeah. I, I wanted to be able yeah. to feel stuff. Um, me being me, an absolute fucking turbo idiot, I stopped them cold turkey. And that was one of the big, biggest mistakes I ever did. Because then that all the emotions then came flooding back through. And I went basically on a, on a yeah. fucking relapse, really. Um, but yeah. then go, and then sorting out, going through the, the positive psychology, actually talking to people, getting more guests on, on the podcast. This is my therapy. I sit and talk to like-minded yeah. people and it could be about anything. We didn't have to go down this, um, this route of the mental health stuff, but you know, we could, we could have just been chatting about fucking Chinooks all day and I would have been happy. You know, <laughs> that, that's how I say it. It's like, it's like having a chat down the pub. It's talking to like-minded people because a lot of my counselling was, you know, this whole mindfulness and breathing and all these things. And don't get me wrong, you know, even as a chick who does, I mean, I used to do yoga and Pilates and stuff, and I should have really embraced that and gone, oh yeah, let's try all this stuff. But for me, I was like, it's just it doesn't work, and I'm sure it does work for some people. I know those people meditation works for. For me, it's been talking about my story to other people and mostly veterans. You know, people that were in helmets at the same time were. Rack and, and those shared experiences and it's almost the stuff that got us through the bad times when we were in the forces which is that camaraderie that's yeah, the yeah. stuff that gets through the bad times when you're out of the forces as well it's those same people you know we're not different we're, we're no different because we're not wearing the uniform we're still the same bunch of people and exactly. we still hold all the mindset and that's really helped me massively but yeah coming off you know I am off my meds now and life's really mm. good and I think that's a really really strong message to put out to oh, people that was don't get me wrong, there was no one day where I went, oh, I'm better. No, I, it really slowly happens, but the, you know, the clouds come less frequently and the, you know, they're not Definitely. as dark. Definitely. So, yeah. And I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And you sound very similar to myself where you didn't want to be um, dependent on little white tablets to get you through the day. Um, I didn't even want to go on them in the first place. I resist. No, I didn't. I resisted. Um, I only went on them because my wife said that she was <laughs> getting she was getting angry at me because I wasn't getting any anywhere. 
Um, so she was like, yeah. you phone the doctor. And this is one of the reasons why I didn't really enjoy going to the doctor as such. I went there and they gave me a bit of paper and they were like, fill it, fill it out. And I was like, all right, but you haven't spoken to me. You, yeah. You're getting me to like, how are you feeling today? One to five or whatever it was. How often do you get angry? It's like, I could, if I really wanted to get on antidepressants and, and be like one of the like crowd, I could fill that out and you wouldn't know any different. It's, yeah. Um, I think. Well, I the think, day that I did, the day. Slightly flawed, I think. It, it really is. The um the day that I did take the overdose, I I actually phoned the GP that morning and said, look, I've woken up today and I'm feeling not myself. I feel like I, you know, I'm emotionally very detached and I want to end my life. And broke down in tears. I actually phoned and eventually I got through the receptionist who said there's no appointments till Thursday. And I just broke down in tears and she said, right, we'll get the GP to call you back. And the GP called me back that afternoon about two o'clock. And he asked a few questions. He said, you know, and I explained about how I was feeling, broke down in tears again. And I lived opposite the GP surgery because it was, I was next yeah. to the hospital. And at no point did he say, look, come in, come across the surgery. He mm. didn't ask what medication I was already taking which had been amitriptyline. I'd started taking that on the Monday for my neck and I'd reordered some of that and he never asked any of the questions and he never, he just prescribed me more meds. And I think that's my moment where I just was like, really no one gives a fuck. And, uh, and then at four o'clock that afternoon, skipped across to the pharmacy and picked up my lethal dose of amitriptyline that I'd pre-ordered and my sertraline that the GP had ordered me that afternoon and combined the two and, and tried to see myself off that night. But I, I'd reached out for help and it was just, mm. it wasn't that I don't think they don't care. They were just under-resourced. Yeah, under-resourced really and, and especially during the COVID time, you know, it undermanned, yeah. you know, yeah. under a lot of pressure. And like a lot of people have said, a lot of things were getting missed because they were focusing so much on this fucking virus that... Yeah, you know, but I feel very lucky to be a veteran because I came out of hospital on the Saturday and I was uh, had a, a mental health assessment on the Sunday. So it was two lovely ladies sat in a room and you know, young girls. And they gave me what was essentially a poly pocket handout with um, some leaflets on it. And they circled Veterans Gateway for me yeah. and said, call this number on Monday and make an appointment. And then you'll go through combat stress and they'll get you PTSD resolutions and stuff like that. That's so that was actually really good. But I did think at one point, you know, what's to stop me just chucking this Polly Pocket in the bin outside and going and buying a bottle of bleach or something? That wasn't my mindset at the time. But yeah. there was no catch remits. There was no, like, we'll, we'll, we'll see you again in two weeks or we'll call you again yeah, on yeah. Wednesday. There was no follow-up. And actually for civvies, I think, coming out of the, in the mental health system, it's really bad. The waiting times are really bad. And I think us veterans are actually really lucky that, we yeah. either have that those catch bits to get us, you know, there is a system out there and not only do they have num like numbers you can call, but they've also got text lines you can text. Yeah, yeah. And, I and, and I think a massive thing, especially in the veteran community that I've seen, if, as soon as like a veteran goes missing or someone's really struggling, it's like, I think there's one that is literally called all call signs and, oh, and, call and, signs and then there's a beacon the thing as well. Really and, they, and they put the beacon out there. Has anyone seen this person? Oh, and yeah. Uh, yeah. one, one that I yeah. I support and have done for the last few years in terms of um, fundraising and things like that is Rock to Recovery. That's one that I really, really love because also the fact that they're not a, a charity as such, um, so they don't take any profits and things like that. It's 
they are they are fantastic. And as soon as there's a veteran in need, no matter the call sign, even though they are, um, I think they're attached to the Royal Marine Charity. Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah, um, but the phone call I made that Monday was the hardest phone call I've ever made in my entire life. A difficult phone call. And yeah. that's why it's so good. There's a text message now. So anyone who's watching this, there is a camera. It's in the back of the book, but there's text message. We'll, for we'll put it. We'll, well, I'll put it in the, um, in the bio. As well. Because we find it's so much easier to write something down. Yeah. Uh, you know, just write, I'm struggling and send that off in a text message. But that phone call, and I, I got through to a lovely Welsh guy. He was really, really lovely. But trying to say the words come out of your mouth. Hi, I'm Liz. I was, I'm a veteran. I was in the Air Force. And I tried to kill myself on Wednesday. It's just a real, I can say it now, obviously a lot yeah, of times. Uh, at the time, it's really bad. Yeah. I, rem- really I, remember really fo- I remember phoning up the GP when I was trying to get um, just an appointment. And they were asking me all these questions. Who are you? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I'm Sean. I'm, I suffer really bad from depression. And then as soon as I said the words depression, I was just burst into tears. Yeah, I and- get that. And it was very similar when I actually went through, um, I, so I did some therapy and a bit like you, I was sat across a, to a lady that, you know, I thought you're not going to understand a word I'm fucking saying. Like, but her, she was also quite brilliant in different, in different things. Like there was a few things during my childhood that ch- children didn't see, but I don't talk about that. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like my disconnect from sort of stuff that happened um, on, on tour, um, in terms of IDFs and and doing Barmer lanes and things like that and and potentially getting blown up, potentially getting shot at every time you go out and things like that. She was like, you say it as though it's sort of like a joke and you're disconnected from it, like it didn't really happen to you. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I went because I didn't get shot at. She went, yeah, but you had you had the adrenaline there every time you stepped out. You're at the time you were 20, 22, 24, and I think 25, I think was my last talk. But um, at the time, you're still young, like, and you're sort of just. You normalize it. Yeah. Like you get so normalized to being in that scenario where you can get shot at that you're right. I mean, we all have a, I think, forces people have a really dark sense of humor, don't we? And you do. Yeah. Like, I think if we didn't, that. if we didn't, I don't think we would cope if we didn't have that dark sense of humor. No, and that's what you're, I mean, I only learned this through my counselling because I'm definitely not a psychologist, but, you know, <laughs> even from day one in the forces, even if you never set foot in a battlefield, we are trained to be shouted at in our faces and, mm. and not respond, you know, not to go to the fight and to stay put. We are trained to hear weapons firing and not over, you know, not burst into tears or cry or run away from the very, very simple things in basic training that we don't even notice we're being exposed to. Mm things that are, are are training our fight and flight response and for us to overcome it to stay in the fight and and just that overcoming what is essentially because reasoned thought would mean that you'd run away you know lions coming to get you run away uh, and, and we are taught from very very day one in the forces to overcome that reason thought and go to the fight and and it, that reason thought you know if you if you if you're trained to overcome what your brain says is normal yeah. You know, you suddenly ever all the all the fucked up stuff becomes normal. Yeah, <laughs> and that's essentially but, what happened. Yeah, my my wife still finds it funny that when the IDF alarm would go off, we would just carry on as normal. Like, yeah, you'd get like the the Americans and some others that would obviously hit the deck and start panicking. But those that have been there before, 
I, I can't lie. The first time I heard the IDF alarm, I fucking shit my pants. Yeah. I was on the floor with a fucking helmet on, body armor on. I was like, fuck. And then like, you just get, it's just normal. Kevlar like, sleeping bag, pull your sleeping bag yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember in Iraq just because obviously our, our bed spaces were known as coffins, like yeah, with the big metal sheet across it, sandbags. But it was probably the best sleep I've ever had. But <laughs> my my missus yeah. like, but you would go to sleep if the alarm went off. I went, well, yeah, if it hits my tent, I'm dead anyway. So, and she's like, Wait. she's like, why, why do you think like that? And I went, well, what do you want me to do? And when if I start panicking, then I'm not going to get the rest of my job's done. Yeah. You know, my, exactly rifle, my rifle still needs cleaning. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's dusty. But it's so, it happens so slowly that that mentality creeps into your brain, you oh, know. Yeah. And, and it takes, you know, a few years in the force of thinking before you know it, you really are desensitized to any form of danger. And, you know, people used to say to me, oh, you're so brave. I'm not brave. I, I never, I would call myself brave mm. because nine times out of 10, if you're getting shot at, it's already, it's like, crossing the road and nearly getting hit by a car yeah it's exactly. over before you even know what's happened but um it's that desensitization towards danger you know some of the merch stuff we went to we knew that we were going to get shot at or contact on the way in but it's your freaking job you know that guy is dying on a ditch and if you don't go to get him nobody else is you know exactly. and it was it was our, and it's just like everybody in the forces is pulling their weight to do their little part of the cog um you know there was no option b so you know you're gonna go um, and I, I, I never, I honestly never, I'm not being macho or brave here to say it, but I don't think I ever felt scared because you just, the only time I ever did feel scared on the back of an aircraft was when we hit a set of wires in Kajaki in 2005 and I actually thought we were going to crash the aircraft. Um, and then we had to limp our way back to Bastion, which was like the longest 45 minutes of my entire life flying that Chinook back to Sebastian when we didn't know mm. what we'd done, what damage wise. But that wasn't enemy fire. That was just, you know, a, a, an issue that, that we'd occurred in, in hitting these high these high voltage pylons. And yeah. I always say that's the closest I've ever come to death, but that was a, a very slow unraveling event where it's mm. getting shot at and, and, and potentially yeah. flying the bullets. It's not, it's, it's not that it's not scary. You just desensitized to it. Yeah. I think, Apart from the the first ever idea, I think the only ever time that I really shit my pants was I was confirming on a IED or suspected IED. It actually wasn't, um, but there was a couple of wires hanging out of the floor, and I don't know if he had a fucking hero complex or what. But my bomber commander corporal came over, looked at it, and went, "That's not an IED," and pulled the wires out. Um, Oh uh, yeah, my my life sort of flashed for a second. I was like, ah, uh, and I was like, oh, thank fuck for that. But yeah. I was like, has he got some sort of hero complex, or does he want to go home with a fucking? We're not in America, mate. We're not going to get a purple heart or anything. Oh. But his again, <laughs> his, his normality bar was probably you know a couple of couple yeah. of months ahead of yours or something because Quite that's possibly. how we end up like that. You know, that's yeah, how yeah. we as a as a bunch of, of people end up like that, and and we're all slightly different on the scale, but we all get there eventually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like I, I can't funny. say like later on in the tour of Kandahar, I can't say that I haven't beeped on the um on the Valen and gone, that's not an ID, and sort of put my foot on it. Because mm -hmm. um, yeah, to it uh, the shock of one of my uh, one of my buddies behind me going fucking out, that that could have been. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not. I know it's not. Yeah, it's and that's a really dangerous mindset. I think I've nearly I've got two bullets in my bedside drawer that have been dug out of the airframe by the engineers for me. That's, the first that's quite one. Cool. 
<laughs> I should turn them into earrings. The first one yeah. came in on one of like a routine tasking day. So sometimes they're the days that catch you out most is when you're not expecting it. And we took some incoming on a landing site, um, southeast of Gare, uh, Lashkagar actually, and a round went in above my head um, on the airframe, ricocheted through the aircraft, and, and said the engineers found it for me. But the other crewman kept saying, Oh, if I'd have been at the front, Liz, I'd be dead by now. And it's like, But you weren't. And you know, Oh, Liz, if you'd have been a foot and a half taller, you'd be dead by now. But I'm not. And it's yeah. really dangerous to have that like negative thinking. And the second time was we were doing a deliberate op. Um, and some we got contacted with AAA, which came up under the aircraft. We actually got built up all over the aircraft, but one round came up under my feet and got caught in the ballistic protection panel that I was stood on. And, uh, yeah. and kind of related to protection like that. So the engineers very kindly dug that out for me and gave me that one as well. So I've been saved twice by my little halo. Um, yeah. But you can't, that that catastrophic thinking of like, but what if, and it could have been, you know, you're not, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a very good reason you're not because there's a blister protection panel there or because, you know, it, you know there's loads of reasons why you, you didn't get killed. So um, yeah, I think yeah. that positive mindset. Definitely. And, you know, servicemen women and and veterans we're always going to have that sort of dark darkness within us i think and yeah. you know that if we didn't then we wouldn't get anything done like a good a good buddy of mine um stuart robinson who is now a olympic gold medalist lost both his legs in in afghanistan and you know even even his sort of nickname on instagram is legless robbo so yeah. you know we're always going to have that sort of <laughs> that sort yeah. of darkness and joking well, aside which but is it, why we all struggle as civvy street because i came out i came out of the military and went thankfully went straight to work for a charity called arability cool yeah fly disabled veterans so anyone who can go with any you know um disabilities and civvies as well but i remember being there thinking how the hell am I going to fit in here? Because I swear like a trooper, you know, I take the piss mass of the other people. You know, when you said your friend lost his legs in Afghanistan, I'm like, well, that was careless. Where did anybody lose them? You know, <laughs> yeah. and you, you've got this really, really dark sense of humour, which doesn't fit in, doesn't fit in in City yeah. State most of the time and certainly didn't fit in, or I didn't think would fit in in the disabled community. But actually, the disabled community are yeah. more brutal than anyone I've ever met in the place when it comes to Definitely. taking a piss out of each other. Uh, I've got a mate who lost. A leg and an arm and a motorbike crash and um and people keep nicking his leg and moving his leg around the office when he's not got it fitted and stuff and like you know that's civvies but they're they're brilliant so yeah. i'm really lucky yeah i had a bit of a, a thing with um a close friend of mine who's who's a civvy um he's he's part of my football team that we've got that we represent uh rocks recovery and um i put a picture up the other day of there was a chelsea player who i don't know why he did this but obviously he's given his shirt to the fans and then somebody's asked for his shorts. So he's taking his shorts off and giving them to the fans. And then someone's taken the, the picture of him running back, but it looks like he's only got one leg. Yeah. My buddy, this has then messaged me separate to the group. And he went, oh, mate, I almost said something really stupid then. I went, what? And he went, like, he must be a brilliant football player if he's only got one leg. And I was like, brilliant. I went, that's quite funny. And he was like, yeah, but I didn't want to put that because of the group and, and you guys are mainly military and, and things. I went, do you not think we would find that funny? It's like love it, yeah. We, I went. We'd probably take the piss even more if you said something like that. And he was like, "Oh, really?" I went, "Yeah." I went, "We're not fragile. We don't take offense that easily, unless yeah. you're unless you're slagging off other veterans and and the actual military. Then we will defend. But normally, it's like 
like even down to banter between the RAF regiment, it's always like, oh, you did the five mile of death. It's like, oh, brilliant. That's that came out in 2007, mate. Get a grip. Yeah. You? Yeah. No, right. <laughs> it's, that, it's that like-minded thinking, isn't it? And that camaraderie that keeps us, it keeps us all united. But um, yeah, it's a very dark. Humor. It definitely does. Like, you know, I, I work with a lot of military people still. Uh, and I think, you know, I still, I always gravitate towards them. You can spot, you can spot military mm. people I love, can you? <laughs> yeah, definitely. We sort of stand out like, even even yeah. when you're in your civvies and you've kind of got a bit more of a beard, you've got stupid hair, but it's mannerisms and and absolutely down, down to down to pointing. But you got your knife hand out and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I haven't quite put a spider in my head yet at any point in the in the shopping center. Yeah, but those days will come. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, Liz, I'm not going to take up any more of your time because we've been on for for a while now, and the timer is about to click in. I just really want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me on on the show it generally has been one of the best shows i've done i've loved every second yeah, of it and i will let you know as soon as i've done no editing and i've got it out it, it won't take no. me long it doesn't take me long at all um zoom, well, pretty, I, zoom pretty much does it all for me which is brilliant okay. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks for having me it's been lovely coming on and uh, i'll send you some of those links so you yes yes send it send them send them over to me and um yeah people that are listening make sure you go out and get liz's book and read it and enjoy it Chinook crew check, it's called. Yeah, it's literally, yeah, does exactly what it says in the tin. Chinook crew check. <laughs> Love it. Have a great rest of your day cool. and I'll catch you soon. Yeah, see you soon, Sean. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye. 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 Bye.